1: Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up-to-date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, the interview is with Dr. Jim Green, nuclear campaigner for Friends of the Earth in Australia, What's that country's culpability for Fukushima? Is it really safer from radiation down under than in the Northern Hemisphere? And how does the country function as a nuclear umbrella for the United States? All that and much more will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, December 17, 2013, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. First, a correction. Last week, we reported that China had banned all import of shellfish from the United States' west coast, and we put that right at the foot of the nuclear accident at Fukushima. It was a breaking story, and later reports revealed that it was high levels of arsenic and a toxin that causes paralytic shellfish poisoning that caused China to ban all clams, oysters, and other two-shelled bivalves harvested from the waters of Washington, Oregon, Alaska, and Northern California. There's no reference to nuclear radiation as of now, and if that story changes, we will let you know. Well, in the too-little-too-late department, meaning two years, nine months, and three days after the start of the ongoing Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, has admitted that they knew about the core meltdowns in in reactors 1, 2, and 3 as early as late March of 2011. An unnamed, of course, TEPCO managing executive said, We should have shared the finding with the public in the belief that it would help promote universal safety, but we failed to do so. The perfect response to this was provided by Dr. Helen Caldicott. She said, The criminal irresponsibility of this is simply mind-boggling. This is unforgivable. We hear a lot from the right about the need for more war on terror. Many corporations make billions off this politically generated agenda. But what of the corporate terrorism inflicted on public health and the environment? How does allowing so many people to remain in harm's way, failing to disclose such important safety information, differ in any meaningful sense from an act of terrorism? Nuclear power is not just a source of energy. It is an ideology that will stop at nothing to fulfill its mission. It is directly tied to nuclear weapons production. The damage it has caused and poses to every living thing on the planet, to public health around the world, to the Earth's entire ecosystem, needs to be addressed in an international tribunal, and the use of nuclear power and weapons must end. Until both technologies are shut down and remediated, what happened and what is ongoing in Japan will never stop happening. The call for an international coalition to work on the not decommissioning, because you can only decommission an intact nuclear reactor, but certainly controlling the problems at Fukushima Daiichi, are growing in volume. The International Research Institute for Nuclear Decommissioning said that Japan is incapable of safely decommissioning the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. This, according to a panel of experts who are calling for an international effort for the dangerous process, and as reported in the Associated Press last Sunday. So mainstream media is starting to pick up the story. In fact, it quoted Harvey Wasserman and veteran U.S. nuclear engineer Arnie Gunderson, that's how they described him, as calling for a global takeover of the decommissioning process. Neither Tokyo Electric nor the government of Japan can go it alone, according to both of our experts. There is no excuse for deploying anything less than a coordinated team of the planet's best scientists and engineers. As if to prove Japan's and TEPCO's incompetence in the matter, Yomiuri Shimbun reports that after purification at the Fukushima plant, the release of radioactive water into the sea is inevitable. AP reports that radioactive tritium rain is likely to result from disposal of Fukushima's contaminated water if they try to do it by evaporation. The nuclear industry is in lockstep behind the idea of either dumping or evaporating the contaminated water. Jung Hong An, a professor at UC Berkeley's nuclear engineering department, said, Radioactivity that would be discharged into the atmosphere would be Acceptably small. Excuse me? Acceptable to who? But Dr. Arjun Mukhjani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, said, All nuclear power plants release tritium into the atmosphere, so you can expect radioactive rainfall around nuclear power plants. We have asked the NRC to require monitoring of rainfall because people have private wells in many places, but they have refused to require it at the International Research Institute for Nuclear Decommissioning. Sounds good, doesn't it? But it was established by the Japanese government. Anyway, at their recent meeting, Managing Director Kazuhiro Suzuki admitted that the fuel at Fukushima melted on, quote, an unprecedented scale, and that the exact location of the core within the reactor units is not known. Slowly... They are coming out of denial in Japan. But the highest radiation level ever detected in a Fukushima plant well was discovered this past weekend. 63,000 becquerels of radioactive material per liter have been found in groundwater that was taken on Monday from an observation well only 5 meters from the coast of the Pacific Ocean. Since TEPCO is not taking steps to prevent tainted water in the well from flowing into the sea, that water is likely to be reaching the plant's bay. Ya think? Officials in Japan are worried because radiation levels have shown a sharp rise in the soil outside of Fukushima. In a forest in the town of Marumori, 37 miles from Fukushima Daiichi, The average cesium level in 10 samples of fallen quills has risen over 16,000 becquerels per kilogram between June of 2012 and a year later. The level of radiation in soil up to 10 centimeters deep more than quadrupled in that same year. Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, said... Recently, a hot particle was discovered 250 miles away from Fukushima. It was so radioactive that if it were a pound of material instead of just a particle, the pound would be giving off 20 billion disintegrations per second per kilogram. And that small speck could easily be lodged in someone's lung. This is fallout. Gunderson continued, All of Japan is a radiologically contaminated area, and the people in Japan need to take extraordinary precautions. The total exposure to the Japanese is being grossly underestimated. In testimony posted on YouTube, Miko, a Fukushima evacuee from Iwake City, said, What happened to Fukushima residents will soon affect all Japanese people. While some say the radiation has dispersed, We are now safe. People are, in fact, dying in Fukushima. One day, a nephew of my friend died of leukemia. The next day, her husband also died. There are people living in Fukushima now. They all say, we are guinea pigs. We will have a link to her subtitled testimony on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode number 130. And now...
0: Nuclear hot seed. Nuclear hot seed. Nuclear hot seed. Numb nuts out of the
1: week. Three count them. Three numb nuts this week. I just couldn't make up my mind, so you're going to get them all. At the annual meeting of the American Geophysical Union, held in San Francisco on December 12th, Some numbnut scientist is pushing the disposal of nuclear waste by injecting it into fracking boreholes in the earth. Not only will your water catch fire, it will glow in the dark. This next one comes from our friend Yori Mochizuki and Fukushima Diary, where he reports that TEPCO has lost the layout drawings of pipes and drains in Fukushima. TEPCO vice president Aizawa and Fukushima chief Ono stated in the press conference on December 11 that the documents were kept in the management office in the Fukushima nuclear plant and the office was significantly damaged by the accident. Oh, and by the way, it was also contaminated with outrageous amounts of radiation. So, the documents are too contaminated, they're radioactive. And quite frankly, nobody can get close enough to them to even find out if they're intact, let alone take them out. And there seem to be no copies, either with GE We Bring Good Things to Life, the designers of the nuclear reactor, or in TEPCO's home headquarters. Talk about planning ahead. But the hardest to take this week, the evil numnuts, was sent to me by Kathy Iwane she let me know that the Japanese National Cancer Institute has released a comic book distributed to schools that teaches that many people will likely get cancer at some point in their lives. That cancer is common. But they don't bother to mention why, and certainly nowhere in this comic book do they mention the F word, Fukushima. Instead, The comic book tells kids very simply that one in two will most likely be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetimes, but that prevention is the key. How could these kids be expected to prevent what's already been done to them without consent, without their knowledge, and with no support from TEPCO or the government? It's like trying to make them feel that it's their fault if they get cancer later in life, because they didn't do enough prevention. This heinous, I don't want to call it a comic book because there's nothing funny about it, but it is done with drawings. This heinous piece is being distributed to 23,500 public elementary schools and 3,000 public libraries as if this mangala style manipulation of public perception is going to get them off the hook for what they did. No jingle at the end. I'm too mad. Over to the U.S., where the Energy Department will give a small company in Corvallis, Oregon, up to $226 million to advance the design of tiny... They don't define what tiny means, nuclear reactors that would be installed under water. Oh, what could go wrong? According to a story in the New York Times, Peter B. Lyons, the assistant secretary for nuclear energy, said in an interview that the company, New Scale Power, has made progress in developing, quote, An invented-in-America, made-in-America product that will export U.S. safety standards around the world. Oh, I wouldn't brag about that if I were you. The award is the second of two under a $452 million multi-year program to assist in the development of small modular reactors. The first award, in November 2012, went to Babcock and Wilcox, the brains behind the design of Three Mile Island. Our tax dollars at work, but not for us. U.S. Senator Edward Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, has confirmed what we at Nuclear Hot Seat and so many others listening to this program have known all along that no federal agency is responsible for monitoring radiation levels in the Pacific Ocean from the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Markey, who's actually one of the good guys, says no one should expect federal involvement due to budget cuts. Thank you ever so much, Tea Party. Markey's statement comes as scientists confirm radioactive water from the Fukushima accident will reach the U.S. West Coast Any time now. Here's a truly outrageous story. The Office of the Inspector General conducted an independent evaluation of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's use and security of social media back in January of 2013. So who did they call to get advice for this independent evaluation? Mainstream media... Hotshots called for the purposes of this report, external stakeholders, more spin speak. The feedback came from the energy editor at AOL, the energy editor at Huffington Post, a nuclear writer at the Huffington Post, and a producer at CNN News, along with a whole raft of pro-nuclear bloggers and blottity-blahs. HuffPost asked for strong infographics and a breakdown of technical information so I can understand the translation from its source. Good luck on that one. The producer from CNN urged the NRC to provide more content that did not involve people in a conference room or of the chairperson speaking from the podium. This is so outrageous. H.L. Mencken said it best. The purpose of journalism is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, not to make the comfortable more comfortable. This is a clear conflict of interest. Where are the Huffington Post and CNN when it comes to helping us improve our media image? Up in Vermont, for more than a week... Governor Pete Shumlin and top state officials have been in closed-door discussions with the owners of Vermont Yankee. But, so far, local voices have been excluded from the high-level talks. The Wyndham Regional Commission, which represents the region's interests of 27 southern Vermont towns, is one of several groups calling for a place at the table. The commission has been a formal party to the state's proceedings on whether to extend Vermont Yankees' license to operate or not. So it's no newcomer trying to horn in on the party. Energy announced in August that the plant would close next year, and the company sought a one-year license renewal in order to keep operating. Right now it's operating, but it has no license. Try getting away with that with your car but there is a little bit of good news. Virginia Uranium Incorporated said it will not back the introduction of uranium mining legislation in the 2014 session of the Virginia State General Assembly. The company had invested hundreds of thousands of dollars over the past several years in political contributions, lobbying, and flying delegations of Virginia lawmakers to France and Canada, to tour uranium mining and processing facilities. But even so, their effort fell woefully short, and legislation in the 2013 session never got out of committee. So much for the power of the international junket. Governor-elect Terry McAuliffe has announced that he intends to veto any pro-uranium legislation. Full-scale uranium mining has never been conducted on the U.S. East Coast, and opponents said Virginia would be a poor place to start, citing its wet climate and the fierce weather that often rakes the state. In California, the Fairfax City Council on December 4th became one of the first municipal jurisdictions to unanimously approve a measure advocating for an independent expert panel to be formed by the U.N. General Assembly for transparent international involvement in mitigating the ongoing Fukushima nuclear disaster. They also ask for government monitoring of seafood for radioactivity from Fukushima pollution. A great example of think globally, act locally. And a reminder that 83-year-old Sister Megan Rice remains in jail, facing a possible 30-year prison sentence resulting from an act of civil disobedience she committed in July last year at the Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Rice, along with Michael Wally and Gregory Borchia Obed, armed themselves with a single pair of wire cutters, yellow tape, symbolic blood that they splashed against the wall, and a Bible to enter this sensitive nuclear facility that once provided the enriched uranium for the Hiroshima bomb. As a nun, Sister Rice deserves to be protected by, or at least acknowledged by, Pope Francis, who is positioning himself as an ecologically concerned, kinder, gentler pope. Nuclear Hot Seat asks that if you are a Catholic and connected with a church, that you bring this up with your pastor as a topic for a sermon and communication back to the Vatican. Did you know that in India there was a 365-day Relay Hunger Strike to Protest Nuclear. It took place in Kovada, which has a nuclear power plant being planned for the area. According to Kumar Sundara of Dianuke.org, the resistance is not just about these 10,000 people who have been affected, but it is against the very idea of nuclear energy that emits radiation polluting the land, water, and air. One need not wait for nuclear accident for radioactive material to pollute, but every stage of the nuclear cycle endangers the Earth with radioactive materials. Even in the safe operation of nuclear plants, there are always leaks and permitted levels of radioactive emissions. Within these permitted levels, still it is dangerous for health and the environment. Sundaram cited an increase in the number of cancer patients and deformed babies being born around nuclear plants and mines in India, even though there have been no reported accidents. There's more on this story by going to dianuke.org. In Finland, French-German consortium Arriva Siemens plans to reduce the number of workers and subcontractors on the construction site of Finland's much-delayed Olkiloto-3 nuclear reactor, this according to the producing utility TVO. Finland's fifth nuclear reactor was originally scheduled to start operating in 2009, but it has been hit by repeated delays and soaring costs and is seen delayed now until at least 2016. When contacted by a reporter from Reuters, no one at Arriva was immediately available for a comment. Kel Surprise. And finally, this story. Ukraine's nuclear regulator has approved a 10-year license extension for Unit 1 at the South Ukraine Nuclear Power Plant. The unit is now licensed to operate beyond its original 30-year design lifetime. Nuclear reactor, licensed beyond its design lifetime, in the Ukraine! What could possibly go wrong again? Time for this week's interview. Dr. Jim Green is the National Nuclear Campaigner with Friends of the Earth in Australia. He's also editor of the International Wise Nears Nuclear Monitor Newsletter and lead researcher with the Australian Nuclear Map and Choose Nuclear Free Projects. He spoke with Nuclear Hot Seat via Skype from his home in Australia. Please note that there are a few Skype-ish problems with the sound, especially near the end, for which we're sorry. But his information is worth listening to and will open your eyes to a whole new perspective on the international nuclear dilemma in which we find ourselves. Dr. Jim Green, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks, Libby. As the National Nuclear Campaigner for Friends of the Earth, Tell us briefly what your job consists of.
2: Well, a whole lot of things and I've got another job which is I'm the editor of the International Nuclear Monitor magazine which is produced by WISE in Amsterdam and also by NIRS, the Nuclear Information and Resource Service in the United States. So I'm very busy doing a lot of research and here in Australia We're dealing with a range of issues including the US nuclear alliance and the hosting of US communications and spy bases here in Australia and also plans to dump nuclear waste on Aboriginal land and Australia's main role in the international nuclear fuel cycle which is uranium mining and exports.
1: Like so many Americans, I was completely ignorant of Australia's nuclear profile until I started researching for our interview. And then from a link to a map that you sent me, australianmap.net, I was shocked to see that there are more than 50 nuclear sites depicted throughout the country. Give us an overview of the issues represented by that map.
2: Well, I think the most important ones would be the, uh, the U.S. The so-called Joint Defence facilities, but they're really US spy and communications bases. And the most important of them is Pine Gap, which is situated right in the centre of Australia uh, near Ayers Rock. Well, a couple of hundred k's from Ayers Rock, but that's fairly close in Australian geographical terms. And the reason that's important is because it shapes everything to do with Australian nuclear policy. It means that Australia is To use the jargon, Australia is a nuclear umbrella state. We rely on the so-called extended nuclear deterrence provided by US nuclear weapons. And that means that instead of playing a positive role towards nuclear disarmament and nuclear non-proliferation on the global stage, Australia plays a spoiling role. And whenever the US is trying to spoil nuclear disarmament and non-proliferation initiative, you can bet that Australia will be right there with them. So that's probably the most important. And Australia's position on the global stage is also undermined by our uranium mining and export policies. So we export uranium to nuclear weapon states including the US and we export uranium to countries refusing to sign and ratify the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty and we sell uranium to states which are embroiled in nuclear arms races and I'm thinking in particular of India there and countries which are blocking progress on the Fissile Material Cut-off Treaty. So again, uh, whether you look at the US Alliance or Australia's commercial uranium export industry, our position on the global stage is is greatly undermined. And there's a view that Australia plays a positive role on the global stage with respect to non-proliferation and disarmament of nuclear weapons. But the truth is is the opposite. We play an appalling role And I've just outlined the two main reasons, the U.S. alliance and commercial uranium industry interests.
1: We cover the story on Nuclear Hot Seat 129 of a recent accident at the Ranger uranium mine where a tank holding more than a million liters of radioactive slurry burst. It was either on December 8th or December 9th. Is there a problem with safety at the uranium mining sites in the country? Is this something that happens regularly?
2: We certainly do have problems with safety. Usually they're not so dramatic as this tank collapsing on December the 8th. And it's interesting to note in parentheses that almost an identical accident happened at one of Rio Tinto's mines in Namibia just a couple of weeks ago as well. So these problems obviously are not unique to Australia. But yeah, we do have a range of problems. Usually it's not dramatic things like tanks collapsing and releasing over a million litres of radioactive slurry Usually it's the slow drip issues, so it's very difficult to rehabilitate uranium mines. So what we've seen is there are a handful, at least a handful of examples in Australia of children breaking into former uranium mines to sites which have been rehabilitated ostensibly but they haven't been properly cleaned up and they're not properly secured because that costs money and often the companies that were mining uranium in the first place don't even exist anymore. So it's more those very long-term and difficult managerial issues rather than the dramatic incidents such as we've just witnessed at the Ranger Uranium mine
1: There seems to be a strong racist pattern within the nuclear industry, especially with mining. Here in the United States, Native Americans in the Southwest have had uranium mines on their reservations, and the tailings continue to pollute their water, their air, their land for decades with the health impact. Up in Canada, the First Nations people are waging a fierce battle against having a nuclear waste dump placed in otherwise pristine lands in northern Saskatchewan. What is the racist aspect of the mining issue in Australia?
2: Well, very similar to what you faced in North America. In Australia, it started off with British nuclear weapons tests in Australia, which happened in the 1950s. And that was done on Aboriginal land with no Aboriginal consent and with a huge amount of radioactive contamination, not only of land, but also directly contaminating Aboriginal people, many of who suffered directly because of those impacts. And more recently, it's the issues that you're witnessing in North America. There are plans to dump nuclear waste on Aboriginal land in the Northern Territory of Australia, and that's been done despite the opposition of a large majority of traditional owners of that land. So there's a really fierce battle going on between traditional owners and the Australian government uh, and also a lot of church groups and environment groups supporting traditional owners. But we also see patterns, which I'm sure you're also familiar with, in terms of divide and rule politics. So the Australian government has successfully bought off a small section of this Aboriginal community in the Northern Territory and they are supporting a nuclear waste dump in return for a package of financial aid but the government's ignoring the wishes of a vast majority of traditional owners. And also, we see the same patterns of nuclear racism in the uranium mining industry as well. For example, the Ranger mine, which we mentioned before, that's in the top end of the Northern Territory in a tropical region, and it's actually within the Kakadu National Park, which is World Heritage listed, but they've simply excised a small portion of the Kakadu National Park in order to build a uranium mine there. And when that was established in the late 70s, Australia had just set up the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, which was groundbreaking legislation in the federal parliament which gave Aboriginal groups in the Northern Territory the right to veto developments on their land. But as soon as they established that Aboriginal Land Rights Act, it seemed clear that the Mirar traditional owners were in fact going to veto the Ranger Uranium mine. So the federal government simply amended the Aboriginal Land Rights Act so that they had no veto over this particular proposal to mine uranium in the Kakadu National Park. So it's a sad and sorry picture, and I could give so many examples, but just to very briefly mention one other, the Roxby Downs or Olympic Dam uranium deposit in South Australia. It's by far the largest uranium deposit in the world. It's got something like 30% of the world's known resources of uh, reasonable-cost uranium, and that operates under an Indenture Act. It's an act of parliament which is specific to the Olympic Dam mine, and it exempts the mine from many provisions of the South Australian Land Rights Act, and they've recently amended this Indenture Act, and they've kept all those exemptions from the Aboriginal Land Rights Act and they didn't even consult aboriginal traditional owners in the process of amending that legislation so it's very sad and sorry and disgraceful and it's blatantly racist and you'd think that this sort of stuff we might have left behind in the last century but it's going on now just as it ever was
1: it's amazing how similarly the nuclear industry operates in all countries it seems they have No conscience, no morals, no ethics, and they will do anything to put their own agenda forward. Talk about the legacy of atomic bomb testing in Australia.
2: It's still with us. The nuclear bomb tests started in 1952, so that's 61 years ago. But, you know, you'd think they happened just yesterday because the the legacy is still so alive and it's still so profound for many Australians who were victims of the test. For Aboriginal Australians, you know, they had one ranger who was meant to round up Aboriginal people and remove them from the bomb test area before they exploded nuclear weapons. But, of course, that one ranger was incapable of fulfilling that task. So many Aboriginal people were directly exposed to radiation. There's a horrendous story of a family which uh, slept in a atomic bomb test crater because of course they didn't know what it was they just saw it as a hole in the ground and that provided some wind protection but of course it was a, a radioactive hotspot and they slept there and suffered the consequences we tend to focus too heavily i think on direct radioactive contamination but there's a really profound social legacy to the british bomb tests so there were problems like aboriginal people being effectively herded off their homelands and forced to live in missions and you could even describe them as concentration camps or prisons because they weren't really allowed to leave those sites and they were removed from their homelands and from their traditional lifestyles and as you can imagine that had predictable social outcomes including uh, well, widespread depression and alcoholism and dislocation, so even now, even 60 years after the bomb tests, you've got families which are dislocated and divided and part of the family will live in Adelaide in South Australia and part of the family in Port Augusta and some further out west and others have gone into Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. And so this dislocation, which is very much alive today, can be traced to the British bomb tests in the 1950s and also it wasn't just the Aboriginal people who suffered, it was army personnel who suffered very greatly, and they haven't been compensated either. There's been a token amount of compensation to Aboriginal victims of the bomb tests, but effectively no compensation whatsoever for the many thousands of army and navy personnel who were involved in these tests. Some of those stories are scarcely believable, but I'll swear they're true. For example, they were using army personnel as guinea pigs. They would set off a nuclear bomb and within an hour they would have army personnel rolling around in ground zero and they were effect, they were testing the effects of radiation and also doing psychological tests on army personnel to see whether they would be willing to do something so, so reckless. But those stories are true that they're scarcely believable. And I didn't believe them the first time I heard a lot of these stories, but it is true. And, uh, not only human guinea pigs, but also stealing body parts from dead babies and dead adults as well in order to test the radiations, so those sorts of things. And, and as I keep saying, the legacy of that stuff is very much alive today. It's, we're not just talking about past crimes. We're talking about a living, breathing history of, of appalling treatment of people by their own governments.
1: It sounds like something that the Nazis would have dreamed up. What strikes me, are two things first of all these were atmospheric tests over a landmass and it was done in the middle of your own country so there was obviously contamination that happened there were people downwind of that and i don't know how far that may have gotten but these were tests that were not even done by your country it was the British bomb that was being tested here is that because it was considered a colony at the time?
2: Yeah that's right Australia was nominally independent in the 1950s but effectively we were still a British colony and there was all the early nuclear politics going on Australia hoped to get access to nuclear technology if we would provide land for British nuclear bomb tests But that never really panned out. All we got from the British was a small, largely useless nuclear research reactor, which was built south of Sydney at a place called Lucas Heights. But we didn't get any meaningful technology transfer. Uh, But we certainly did get a lot of radioactive fallout. In fact, all of the Australian mainland, apart from a small strip of southwestern Western Australia, was affected by radioactive fallout from the British bomb tests. Uh, we had situations such as the largest of the British nuclear bomb tests. It was carried out off the coast of Western Australia at a place called Montebello Islands, And that was a bomb of some 60 kilotons, vastly more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. And that sent a plume of radiation right across Australia. And it happened to be raining in northern Queensland. So that's 3,000 kilometres to the east and it was raining at a place called Townsville, so that brought a lot of the radiation to ground. They had radioactive rain in Townsville because of a nuclear bomb that was exploded a couple of days earlier, uh, 3,000 kilometres away off the coast of Western Australia.
1: Has there been any research done for a correlation between the exposure to radiation from these tests and cancer rates in Australia?
2: There have been some studies in into the cancer incidence in relation to the British nuclear bomb tests but it's a very difficult area of study and they haven't been nearly systematic with their with their research as they should have been but nevertheless the most serious study was carried out about 7 or 8 years ago and they did find a statistically significant increase in the level of cancer incidence and mortality amongst people who were exposed to radiation from the British bomb tests at Maralinga in South Australia. But it hasn't translated into compensation, let alone justice for the people who were exposed. And they've been fighting this issue through the courts for the past 60 years, and almost all of them are dead. I work closely with one particular gentleman who was a whistleblower in relation to the British nuclear bomb test in Australia, and he's been fighting this for so many decades, and they keep getting knockbacks, And it's been a very, very depressing situation for people such as my friend Avon Hudson, who has fought so long and hard. And he has done a spectacular job in raising the public profile of these issues. But as I say, it hasn't translated into compensation, let alone anything remotely resembling justice.
1: What about the domestic use of nuclear reactors? How prevalent is that in the country
2: Well, we don't have any nuclear power reactors whatsoever in Australia. There was one serious plan to develop nuclear power in the late 1960s at a place called Jervis Bay, but that was knocked on the head by public opposition and because of the cost of that proposed power reactor. And it was later revealed by the Prime Minister of the day that that plan for nuclear power was underpinned by a secret nuclear weapons agenda and specifically they wanted a power reactor because it would not only produce electricity but it would also produce plutonium which could be used in nuclear bombs and that raises you know probably the greatest issue in relation to this civil nuclear fuel cycle which is its contribution to weapons proliferation but anyway uh, that plan didn't go ahead and since then there hasn't been any really serious pushes for nuclear power in Australia We're blessed with renewable resources in Australia, but unfortunately the main reason that there is are no nuclear power reactors is because of our abundant coal reserves. And so we get roughly 85% of our electricity in Australia from coal. And there's a small but vocal lobby for introducing nuclear power in Australia, but they're not gaining much traction. So I think the serious part of the debate in Australia is expanding renewables and closing down the old coal-fired power plants.
1: Let's switch over to what's so much on the minds of people who work in the nuclear issue, and that is Fukushima. What was Australia's role in the Fukushima disaster?
2: We have been a major supplier of uranium to Japan for some decades, and certainly Australian uranium was being used in at least five of the six reactors at Fukushima Daiichi, And possibly all six of the reactors there and Australia's main role has been to not only supply uranium but also to turn a blind eye to the long-running systemic safety scandals in Japan you know quite a lot of people hadn't heard about the problems with the Japanese industry until the Fukushima reactors exploded but they go much longer and deeper than that and one significant point was 2002 when thanks to the brave work of whistleblowers, it was revealed that there had been around 200 incidents of accidents and incidents being covered up by the industry and systematic falsification. You know, for example, they would systematically understate the radiation releases from their nuclear plants and systematically understate the releases of radioactive pollution to the ocean. And they were covering up very serious incidents such as emergency shutdowns of reactors. So we were dealing with very serious problems and very widespread problems. They came to light in 2002 and you would have hoped that that would have led to some serious change such as the establishment of an independent regulator, but the problems were simply swept under the carpet. Again, in 2007, there were revelations of 300 additional incidents of accidents being covered up and all sorts of problems like that. And again, you would have hoped that that would have led to the establishment of an independent regulator, but it didn't. So Fukushima in 2011 was an accident waiting to happen. It wasn't the first accident, and it probably won't be the last. It was due to a systematic pattern of corruption. And Australia's role in that was to turn a blind eye. You know, Even some small efforts from Australia, such as publicly drawing attention to the grossly inadequate safety standards in Japan... You know, public statements along those lines, they would have been heard by the Japanese puppet regulator. They would have been picked up by the Japanese press. It could have led to some change. So that's just talking about a small ask, such as making public statements. There were obviously other options to Australia, such as making uranium exports conditional on the establishment of a genuine independent regulator in Japan. But that simply didn't happen. So Australia is partly culpable for the Fukushima disaster. We're not nearly as culpable as TEPCO, the operator of the Fukushima plant. We're not nearly as culpable as the Japanese government and the puppet regulator, but we are nonetheless culpable.
1: It seemed that there has been a pattern of deception on the part of TEPCO that was invisible to those of us who weren't in the loop when it came to Japan's nuclear industry. What has been the radiation situation in Australia since Fukushima? Has any spike in radiation shown up in the water or the air? And to what extent is there any monitoring going on in the country?
2: There's monitoring, but it's not terribly systematic. But we're not terribly worried about that because the amount of radioactive contamination in Australia has been very, very small. You could even say negligible. And it's been limited to the top end of Australia, the northernmost coastlines. But as I say, it's been negligible. So we haven't been terribly concerned about that. There have been bigger issues with respect to importing contaminated fish and so on. But uh, it's hard to get a handle on these issues because the monitoring hasn't been as systematic as we would like it to be. And we're not privy to the results of the monitoring that is carried out. And Australia has the same problem as Japan and the United States and so many other countries in that we don't have a genuine independent regulator, so they're not keen to give us what results they have acquired, and we don't trust them. So, But, you know, we're really dealing with a fairly major information gap, but it's not a high priority for us, or at least it's not a high priority for me, because uh, I don't think the contamination is, is significant.
1: Have you worked with Dr. Caldecott?
2: Uh, yes, to some extent. I think I first met Dr Caldercott in the late 90s when we were fighting to stop the replacement of the Lucas Heights nuclear research reactor in southern Sydney and uh, we gave that a real shake. We looked at various stages like we might win that campaign but the conservative federal government kept getting re-elected and uh, unfortunately we lost that so they've replaced the old British reactor at Lucas Heights with a uh, one supplied by Argentina, and that's up and running at the moment. Uh, but yeah, I've, uh, I've bumped into Dr. Caldergott on several occasions since then.
1: Now, there's a long-standing belief that, since the book and then the movie on the beach, the belief that the Southern Hemisphere is somehow safer than the Northern Hemisphere from a nuclear accident or radiation release that might happen in the Northern atmosphere, is that truth? Is that urban myth? Does that have any validity at all, to your knowledge?
2: My knowledge is very limited. I really haven't looked at that issue in any detail whatsoever, but my understanding is that we are protected to some extent from radioactive fallout in the Northern Hemisphere, and I think that would be borne out to some extent by the reality of the radiation plumes from Chernobyl and more recently from Fukushima, and probably also from the extensive atmospheric bomb testing in the Northern Hemisphere. But of course that doesn't mean we're completely safe and one of the things we're worried about in Australia is the potential for nuclear power plants to be developed in Indonesia and we're concerned about that because Indonesia is very close to Australia and because there is no independent regulator and we're worried about the sort of technology that they might put in place in Indonesia. It might, for example, be dodgy Russian technology which is spreading all around the world because the Russian utility Rosatom which is state-owned, they're gaining a lot of contracts because they're supplying not only reactors, but they're also supplying the finance for those reactors, which is giving them a, a very big competitive edge. And certainly in the case of nuclear power reactor accidents in a place like Indonesia, then Australia would be very vulnerable.
1: What other threats does Australia face from the nuclear industry?
2: Often there is talk about using Australia as a dumping ground for international nuclear waste and this first came to light in 1998 and it was revealed that a consortium called Pangaea Resources was secretly planning to use Australia as the world's nuclear waste dump. They were pulling together a consortium of United States commercial interests and European and and places from other countries around the world and they produced a promotional video, but worse luck for them, that was leaked to Friends of the Earth in the UK, then it was leaked in Australia, so their promotional video was publicly available much sooner than they wanted it to be. And it generated a ferocious backlash in Australia, so even Australia's conservative, racist, rapidly pro-nuclear political parties, they weren't prepared to touch this. It was Much too hard for them So they weren't prepared to promote this idea at all But nevertheless We hear talk of Australia being used as the world's nuclear waste dump It just crops up every couple of years And you get some fairly prominent supporters of that idea Such as former Prime Ministers And former Foreign Ministers But the reality is that the Australian public is simply not going to buy it So I don't think there's any serious risk of that happening But the issue certainly won't simply go away
1: How strong is the anti-nuclear movement in your country?
2: Well, there are different levels to it. There's certainly a significant amount of public opposition, but the question is the extent to which we can mobilize that opposition and and really stop the government's plans because of it. And to give a a couple of positive examples, when they wanted to establish another uranium mine in the Kakadu National Park, and this one was called Jabaluka, Tens of thousands of Australians took to the streets. In fact, hundreds of thousands of Australians took to the streets. I live in Melbourne, Australia, which is a large city, and we had rallies of up to 50,000 people, and we had unanimous opposition from the traditional loaners, the Aboriginal tradition loaners. And uh, after a really long and difficult battle, we finally won that, and they gave up on the Jabalika Iranian mine. So that was a very significant victory. Another victory was stopping a plan to, dump, to build a nuclear waste dump on Aboriginal land in South Australia and again there was a very effective coalition between Aboriginal traditional owners and environment groups and church groups and trade unions and we even had our state government on side there. So we have had those victories and I think the government is too scared to even attempt to introduce nuclear power into Australia so we can mark that down as a victory. But we haven't had nearly so much success with respect to uranium mining. The public opinion is evenly split on uranium mining, but we're struggling to get people actively involved in campaigns to stop uranium mines unless they're in particularly sensitive areas.
1: We have listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat in Australia. If they or any of the other listeners around the world could support you in the work that you do, what would you ask of them?
2: Well, it depends where they are, but, you know, people wherever they are can certainly make a contribution in one way or another. I guess I would ask them to check out some of the websites which we use to link people into the movement. And one of those is AustralianMap.net. Another is ChooseNuclearFree.net. Or people can check out the Friends of the Earth website, foe.org.au. Uh, but, you know, there are anti-nuclear campaign groups operating in most capital cities and a number of regional locations and a huge amount of work that can be done remotely, whether it's uh, computer work or all sorts of things. So, yeah, I would certainly encourage people to get involved and, of course, they're welcome to contact me at Friends of the Earth as well.
1: And one final question on behalf of those of us who do live north of the equator. What's the immigration policy?
2: I don't think you want to come here now. We're trying to get out of here because we've got a Tea Party government in Australia which is just hideous. It's very, very right-wing and they treat asylum seekers appallingly. There's all sorts of health problems and suicides and self-harm amongst asylum seekers who are subject to mandatory detention in Australia. Uh, We do have fantastic weather and all sorts of beautiful geography here in Australia and a lot of great people that... I wouldn't be planning to come out here until we've got rid of this Tea Party government.
1: So it seems like just another example of there is no away, there's no place to run, no place to hide, and we all just have to deal with the nuclear issue that we find in our own backyards.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: Dr. Jim Green, I want to thank you so much for having been the guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: Uh, Have pleasure, Libby. Thank you.
1: That was Dr. Jim Green the National Nuclear Campaigner with Friends of the Earth Australia. We'll have links to the websites he mentioned up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode number 130. We'll have the RADCAST Radiation Weather Report in just a moment. But first, if you haven't made your end-of-the-year donations yet to the anti-nuclear group of your choice, consider making it to Nuclear Hot Seat. As this program has gotten more popular... And it's now downloaded on five continents. The bandwidth charges alone have risen to where it's a challenge to meet the costs. If you enjoy the news, the interviews, the humor, help me keep bringing them to you. There's a donate button on our homepage, so consider making a contribution to support this podcast and keep it going. We're at nuclearhotseat.com. Scroll down on the homepage and click on the big red donate button. Whatever you can do to help, Know that it's appreciated. And now, Radcast.
0: This is Mimi Gurman for the Radcast Report, radically relevant and the first of its kind. Today is Tuesday, December seventeenth, 2013. Remember, the Radcast Alert is set at 100 counts per minute. The elevated readings from last week's Nuclear Hot Seat Radcast Report have decreased considerably as the winds and weather push through the United States. A new pattern appeared on December 15th and 16th where the elevated readings had risen, but not the averages. Note, we are seeing an increase overall in the averages across the country, no matter how slight. The percentages are rising by single digits in most places, but because they are percentages, this is something to take note of and take into account as radiation continues to permeate our continent and beyond. Today in RADCAST News... Iowa saw a wave move through last night. We are still not sure what caused it, but it would seem that it was not about radon. Perhaps a nuclear plant leaking again? We will report back to you on this next week when we have better intel surrounding this. The reading was averaging 43 and spiking at 75 counts per minute, which is very high for Iowa. We're also noting elevations in Northern California and Southern Oregon today. The Southwest is seeing highs in mid to upper 70s and 80s. Clearly something is going on, or better put, something is coming in with the snow. Counts in Canada for snowfall have been extremely high. Counts in snowfall in Montana have been high. Taos, New Mexico has been averaging in the mid-70s. That's an average, folks, in the mid-70s, not a high. We're seeing potential incoming radiation from Japan as it enters through the northwest region of the United States today. We're seeing elevations in our readings in the normally low and quiet Sitka, Alaska. But their readings are also averaging higher now, but only slightly so. That's all for today. Tune in next week for the Radcast Report, and thank you for listening to the Nuclear Hot Seat. This is Mimi Gurman for Radcast.org. Thank you, Mimi. Activist shout-outs. Hey! What are you doing
1: April 8th through 10th, and can you get yourself to San Francisco? That's because that's when the World Nuclear Fuel Cycle 2014 conference will be taking place an international forum for the discussion of issues affecting the commercial nuclear fuel cycle. They're all going to be there. Utility executives, uranium producers, nuclear fuel brokers, transporters of nuclear materials, nuclear energy equipment and services providers, and here's where it really gets interesting. Energy economists and analysts for financial and investment institutions and government policy makers, and regulators. What'd you say? Sound like a place to do a demo or an infiltration or two? You'll get the information at NEI.org. Remember, April 8th through 10th. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear a hazmat suit and mask. Final thought? I think I'm coming down with the flu. So in closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 17, 2013. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, Fukushima Diary and Iori Mochizuki, Arne Gunderson and Fairwinds.org, New York Times, Asahi Shimbun, Dr. Helen Caldicott, Yoimori Shimbun, CommonDreams.org, Marine Pollution Bulletin, the Community Symposium on Decommissioning San Onofre, NHK World, GG Press, Kyoto News, News NBCNews.com, KUOW, TurnerRadioNetwork.com, VPR.net, IndustrialInfo.com, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission itself, the New Zealand Herald, Eon3EMFBlog.net, Save Children from Radiation.org, Al Jazeera.com, Dianuke.org, Reuters, World Nuclear News, Nuclear Energy Institute, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver, looks like Weber, sounds like Weaver. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Copyright 2013, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. Permission to reuse granted, as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.